All right, Genesis 13, 1 through 18. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. He went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were also, uh, excuse me, were dwelling then in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen. For we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go to Zor. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley, and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abraham moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Justin. I am having absolutely so much fun. Um, eight years into our journey and to see the potential for a church plant, the kids' ministry. We have a young adults' ministry as well now and the youth. Um, the only ones that could mess it up, if we were humble, would be us. So I think it's striking that we find ourselves in Genesis 13 because where one keeps the eyes is rather important. Throughout every generation, as we even look through church history, where one keeps their attention at is the means by which one will find themselves walking. The influence which the eyes have upon the body is staggering. Jesus even knew this himself when he said in Matthew 6, 22 through 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be filled of darkness. Then if light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Proverbs 27, 20. Jesus alludes to this, but also 
I won't go in depth with it, but Scripture as a whole, it says that the eyes are able to lead someone to good life and making wise decisions, but it can also lead to disaster. Proverbs 27, 20, Shaol and Abaddon are never satisfying, nor are the eyes of a man ever satisfied. Think about it. The eyes of an individual have been so carefully designed, they're like a fire. They're like a flame. They never grow weary of perceiving and seeing. Like when we go to the gas station to fill up our gas tanks, there's a point where it gets full, except for when it's $5 a gallon, right? We just cut it off short. But unlike a gas tank, our eyes never stop perceiving or getting weary of it. They get weary only at the moment in which the body cannot keep from keeping the eyelids open. And it can, if, it, if you recognize how, how unique they have been crafted and how wonderfully they have been shaped, it's why we can go to every sunset or every sunrise and never get bored at looking at God's creation. For these reasons that the psalmist will write even in Psalms 19.1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. He's seen, never growing tired of it. He sees the glory of God and their expanses, declaring the works of his hands. And God has designed carefully the eyes to see it without ever becoming full. So with this in mind... As we've already seen, Genesis has these rhythms, it has these emphases that are made throughout the story. And we see the fall of man when, when man and woman see and partake. Genesis 3, verse 6, when this woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from it. It's fruit, and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The influence of the eyes upon the body is staggering. It can lead one to life or disaster. And the world knows it. The CEO of Netflix, Reed Hastings, was asked several years ago when Hulu and Prime Video and, um, I don't know, what are the other Facebook and YouTube were starting to get their toes into the water of streaming, video streaming. And they asked him, what do you think about all these different competitors? You know what his response was? He said, Hulu and Prime and YouTube and Facebook are not our competitors. For the market is vast. No, our competitor is sleep. Why? Because when the body closes or is unable to continue observing, it, the eyelids go over the eyes. And he then pr- proudly pronounced, we're winning. We are now able to keep people up longer at night and making them sleep shorter by being able to provide more media in front of them that is entertaining to the eyes. The eyes are staggering and what they can do to the body, it can actually cause us Exhaustion. Author of Genesis is is worried how you might perceive and walk in light of what you see. And it's right in front of us here in this, this chapter once again. Remind you, we have been 
going through Genesis. And last week we looked at Abram. It was given a promise and, and we saw that in that promise a man who was wavering in his faith while he was one who was given this promise, he makes a variety of bad choices. One, he was supposed to leave his family and go to this new land, but he knew that his wife Sarai was barren, so he brought along Lot. And the moment while she went to the promised land, God continued to be gracious to him and even in spite of bringing Lot along, God showed up and gave God, uh, Abram another promise, or just a, not another promise, emphasized the promise once again. The moment of difficulty in the famine, Abram left the promised land and he went to Egypt. In light of that, he knew his wife was beautiful and he knew that Pharaoh would like her and he said, Sarah, Sarah I tell Pharaoh that I'm your brother and practice self-preservation. By the time you get down with ch- chapter 12, we saw faith, the faith of Abraham waver three times. And when we start in chapter 13, it's almost as Abraham recognizes, I need to go back where it all began. But as we go through this, we're going to see two men who are looking and responding to the world in front of them as a result of what they see. One man is going to only see the land And another man is going to see the promise of God. And he's going to hold fast to it. Which is actually revealed, we only did Genesis 13, but it's actually be revealed in Genesis 14. So they say, i got to get going because I'm going to do two chapters this morning. But look at how he responds. As we look at the the eyes of Lot, we get a review that Abram's heart has responded when he's returning back to the promised land. In verse 1 of chapter 13, so Abram went from Egypt to the Negev, and he and his wife and all the belongings to him. And Lot with him. Lot is still tagging along with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, and silver and gold, and he went on his journey from the Negev as far as Bethel. And the author here wants you to recognize he's going back. He's going back to the place where God's presence went before him. Verse chapter 12, verse 7, the the Lord appeared to Abram. Abram goes back to that place, verse 3. He went back to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. And you have this response, Abram recognizing that he had wavered in three occasions. Now he's going back in fellowship with the Lord. Now we see the conflict in verse 5. Seven. The conflict set before us is the land is not able to take care of both of them. Now Lot, verse 5, who went with Abram also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them both while dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together, and there was strife. I mean, right, remember, the only family that Abram has is Lot. His brother died, Terah is gone, and here his only family relationship is Lot, and he's going to try everything necessary to keep this relationship intact. In verse 7, as there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdmen of Lot's livestock, now the Canaanite and the Pezzarites were dwelling then in the land. And in these next few verses, we're going to learn how Lot looks and how he uses his eyes so Abram said to Lot, verse 8, Please, let there not be strife between you and me, 
nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, and if to the right, then I will go to the left. Like, the promised land has been promised to Abram by the Lord. And Abram, at this moment, is offering Lot a portion of the promised land. I want you to notice how Lot responds. Look what he does. Lot lifted up his eyes. And as you read Genesis and you're reading one or two chapters a day, look how many times people use their eyes. Just in the previous passage, Pharaoh's officers or officials saw Sarai. And their eyes, the way that they use their eyes, influence how they use the body. Here Lot, he lifts his eyes and he saw all the valley of the Jordan. For the sake of time, the valley of the Jordan is on the edge, so to speak, of the promised land. It's, it's almost as if it's beyond what God has promised to Abram. And Lot, looking at what all has been promised to Abram, he looks to the valley of the Jordan, on the edge of the border and beyond. And what does he see? He sees that there's a place that is well watered with everywhere. That it's, uh, let me see, verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, but look how it was like. It was like the Garden of Eden, the Garden of the Lord. It was like Egypt. As you go to Zoar, it, it was fertile. It was opportunity for prosperity. And he lifts his eyes up and it sits on the edge of the promised land, even almost beyond it. And all he can see is opportunity. And as the reader goes on, what, we, what he sees is not what God sees. And what God sees is found in verse 13. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. Two men's eyes are going to be contrasted against each other. And one eye sees what is beautiful and yet immoral, and he is able to set that aside to see the opportunity before him. As you go on through Genesis, you will see time and time again the consequences this plays on Lot's life. But all he can see is opportunity. And he has literally turned his back. What the author has tried to show us at this point. He turns his back on the promised land which God dwells and meets his people. Which Abram has experienced himself in chapter 12. To turn his back to look down to the valley where there's opportunity and immorality. The eyes have a staggering way of influencing the body. And sometimes will take you in the opposite direction of God. And all the while, the eyes say, this is good. The woman saw, saw that it was good, and took of it. Abram looks a little different. You know, Lot, he... He makes himself look, and he decides, look at it again, verse 10. Lot lifted up his eyes 
and saw at the valley of the Jordan. And verse 11, so Lot chose for himself. Abram's going to be responding a different way. And as a result of the way that Lot looks and the result of Abram, the way that Abram looks, literally, Abram said, I'll go left if you go right. But now they are going in totally different directions. Abram is unwilling to leave the promised land. But Lot is willing to go to its borders and beyond. Abram, verse 12, settled in the land of Canaan, the promise. While Lot settled in the cities of the valley, moved his tents as far as Sodom. Not Sodom. I said I wouldn't do that. I've been doing that all week. Sodom, forgive me. If I say Abraham too, forgive me, or Sarah or Sarai. But he moves to Sodom. And we know, as we will get there in a few weeks, how wicked it is there. Let's turn and now look at Abram's eyes. The way that Abram looks is interesting. Lot lifts his own eyes. Here, Abram, it's almost as if God like grabs a hold of Abram's head and says, now look, this is yours. It's like the hand of God directing where Abram is supposed to be looking. Lot lifts his own head. Abram is being influenced by the word of the Lord. And so verse 14, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are, northward, and southward, and eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see. I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. If you're careful and you read it slowly, you'll recognize something has been added from the previous promise. The previous promise God promised Abram that his descendants would possess the promised land. But now he's all alone. Lot is gone. Father is gone. Brother is dead. It's just him and a barren woman. And God says, I will give it to you and your descendants. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that it anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Arise, walk about the land through its lengths and breadth, for I will give it to you. You see Abram's response. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Two eyes, two contrasts. First point, the lot of the eyes of Lot. He looks according to his own eyes. He sees that it's good. He doesn't care about the immorality that's in the land. He doesn't care that the presence of God doesn't dwell there. It just looks good. And so he goes. Abram, he is looking in an entirely different way as if the Lord is grabbing him and saying, no, this direction, look left, look right, look up, look down, now wander. And he chooses after rising and walking to settle in the place which God had told him to live and he builds an altar there before the Lord. The question I have for me is we've seen this already. Two times the author has done this. Chapter 12, we see a similar promise. But a moment in which trouble comes and there was a famine. Chapter 12, trouble shows up 
and he flees to Egypt. The question that I have, is this Abram different than the Abram that we see in Genesis chapter 12? What is the writer doing with the things that he's writing? And in chapter 13, we see a faith of Abraham that's different and distinct than the faith in Genesis 12. He's using his eyes differently than he is using his eyes in Genesis 12. And so when he sees the famine in 12, he flees. Genesis chapter 14, he sees a different problem. And it's severe. It's a significant problem. And I'm going to cop out. Like, if you want to be a Hebrew scholar, the the scholar must go through chapter 14 and read the kings by name without error. I'm not going to, I'm humbly acknowledge that I couldn't do it. Um, It would be humbling, but there's something that's striking about Genesis chapter 14. I mean, just look at chapter 1, verse 1. I'm I'm not going to try. The names here, but not only the names are significant, but the use of what's connected to the names are kings. 28 times in chapter 14, the term king pops up. Random? No. Before, when Abraham was given the promise, he saw a famine and fleece. What does Abraham now see? Years Upon years, these kings fighting for 14 years, but Catalomer and his allies are defeating anyone who comes against him. And now he has come up along the promised land borders, and he has gone up. And look what happens in verse 11. These kings, they conquer Sodom and Gomorrah. And verse 11, look what they do. This is what kings do. When they win, they take. They took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supplies and departed. Abram's seeing this. He's watching. When his faith was wavering, this is when you go. And they also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed for he was living in Sodom. The author emphasizes these things He's trying to get, it's just, as you reflect your own way, you have worked your whole life to enjoy the things that you enjoy. Whether it be a car, whether it be a house, whether it be security, maybe it's a savings account, whatever that is. Lot lost all of it through these kings. The land that he once thought was beautiful now has now become his curse. And he's been taken off. Everything that he's worked for. So what do you do when you see that type of, of individual come and take, well, you take what you have, at least scrap and start from zero, and you flee. Well, that's what you did before, Abram. Abram responds in a different way. Why? Because of the way that he's looking. God gave me this land, or he's going to give me this land. He has given me the prosperity that I have. And so what he rather does is when a fugitive, verse 13, let's summarize some of these things because I want to focus on the latter part of this chapter. Fugitive came, Told him about what happened a lot. And Abram, who happens to not be a king, a shepherder, gets some men and conquers a king who has only but conquered for 14 years. How does he do that? When he conquers that, look at verse 16. I'll answer the question here in a second. He brought, verse 16, he brought back all the goods. 
He also brought back his relative lot with his possessions. And also the women and the people. And as he has become victorious against Catalomer and his allies, two kings come before him. One king is called Melchizedek and the other king, Sodom, which Lot dwelled in, his land. And I want you to recognize what Melchizedek says about how Abram became successful in fighting these kings. Verse 17. Then after his return from the defeat of Catalumer and the kings who were with him and the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavev, that is the king's valley. So Abram's out where the kings meet. What's interesting what you're going to see happen here is even though this little man, not little man, this man who has some prosperity, no family, barren wife, he's, he's dwelling or he's meeting kings where kings meet. And they treat him like a king. Melchizedek, king of Salaam, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God's most high. First king that comes out before him is actually a king which lives in the land which has been promised to Abram. This is striking what he's going to say next. Because normally when there's an up-and-coming king within your land, you eliminate the rival. But this king, who happens to be the priest of the God Most High, sees Abram and the blessing that's upon him says this. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Melchizedek is looking with a different set of eyes. He's looking with the same eyes that Abram is starting to begin to use and acknowledges the means by which Abram conquered Catalomer and his allies is because God has done it for him. And blesses him. And he doesn't see Abram, who lives in the promised land, as his rival, but his ultimate blessing. And look what he says. Well, look what he brings. He brings out bread and wine. It's like an offering of peace. If you're blessed, I'll be blessed. And he doesn't ask for anything, but rather just gives a blessing. And Abram's response is, here's a tenth of all that I've got. He honors the man who is the priest of God. And this will begin to build on what we will come to learn, what is a tithe. But initially starts with the priest who recognizes as Abram the blessing that lies upon him. And he sees it and responds in blessing. The other king, though, the king that sits on the border, all he could care about is getting his stuff back, getting his people back. And while he's on the outside of the promised land, look at how he responds to Abram. The king of Sodom, <laughs> there it is again, Sodom, excuse me. You're so gracious with me. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. 
some ways, those people are mine. But because you're an up-and-coming king, let's strike an agreement. You can keep the goods. But let's keep it cordial, giving my people back. Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have sworn to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And you're going to see how Abram is seeing. I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours. For fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. Abram is walking in this state of faith in which he does not see the necessity of kings of the earth to make him wealthy. And up in chapter 14, when kings conquer, they take the goods. But this new and upcoming king, Abram, who's not a king, but he's a shepherd, when he conquers, he comes and brings back. And even when he faces arrogant kings, he's willing to give them all their due back. I will not take a thread or a sandal thong or anything that is yours. For fear you would say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing. I like Abram. Abram in chapter 14, I like. Abram in chapter 12, I identify with. I will take nothing except what the young man has have eaten and the share of the men who went with me, Adner, Eshkol, and Mamre. Let them take their share. Give them their dues. But mine, my, my reward will not be given to you by the hands of man, but the, from the hands of God, in which he said, I will give you this land. And I will make you a blessing. I will make you prosperous. And you see a man who's seen kings, rejecting them for the king of kings. The eyes are influential in the sense that it can dictate how the body responds. It'd be easy. Oh yeah, this is God blessing me through pagan kings. Abram has nothing to do with that. He does not reshape the promise. He entrusts himself to the promise. And in Genesis chapter 15, which we'll go to next week, This act of faith is now credited to him as righteousness. It's cool. But we're in chapter 12 or 13, 14. So what do we do with this? What's our convictional response? Because the reality is, I think, is that many of us have not been promised the promised land, right? Abraham knew his promise. And when you know your promise, it's helpful to entrust yourself to what God has promised. And so we think, well, we live in tri-cities. What does Israel do us? I think that is the challenge that we face as Christians, as God's people, is remembering what God has promised us. So that through the eyes, we might walk in a way respond faithfully with our bodies. I mean, God does give us promises and he cares how we use our eyes in light of the promises. In fact, Matthew 5, 26, 
Jesus says it in another way. If your right eye makes you to stumble, tear it out. Throw it from, your, from you. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. He cares how you use your eyes. What are you looking at? What promises are you entrusting yourselves to? Because the reality is, is that the world will give you its promises. This life is the only life you've got, so you better enjoy it entertained. And Netflix knows it. Facebook knows it. The eyes never are full. Isn't it strange? Put the phone right in front of you, and you're like, where did that 30 minutes go? Isn't that strange? There is a battle for your eyes. I think it's marvelous that he gave us something to read with our eyes. And when the eyes perceive the promises of God, of the invisible God, we can enjoy them physically in reality. And so this is why when Jesus came, his first phrase was repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He offered a kingdom, physical reality of his rule and reign upon earth. And he said, his first sermon, Matthew 5, he uses language that's familiar for us in Genesis. Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their need for God on a daily basis. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Man, the things that you watch would make you think that you're secure will create a way of responding with your body that is dishonoring. Money is good if used for a good thing. But if you use it to find your confidence, it will lead to disaster. Matthew 5, 4, same terminology. This term, like in Genesis, it's God who blesses. Blessed are those who mourn, who realize that their use of their eyes, their hands, their feet are ungodly. For they shall be comforted. I'm not going to go through all the Beatitudes, but I wanted to get to verse 5. Because yes, Abraham was promised Israel. Look north, look east, look west, look south. It's all yours. But Abram and his descendants are not just the only people who are God's people. Christ comes on the scene in which he offers a kingdom for all people. In Matthew 5, 5, he says, Blessed are the gentle. Some of you might say, meek. Those who are standing in humility and resting, resting genuinely upon the Lord. Trust in Him. Look to Him. For what is their reward? The earth. To Abram, the land is Israel. It is yours. Like, when we look at the world in front of us and say, this is all we have and this is the only time we get to enjoy it. It'll influence the way that you walk. The Christ offered us an eternal kingdom with an earth restored. And as a result of this, 
he often taught, don't store your treasures in this fallen kingdom. Moth will destroy it. Like taking Abram's head, he, he takes his people through his word and says, lift them up. The earth is yours. Store your treasures in heaven and the kingdom to come. So do not store up treasures for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break it and steal. Like if you were to read the old teaching from Christ on the Beatitudes, he offers an eternal relationship with God. Yes, God's presence dwelled with Abram in the promised land, but he offers that to us, an eternal relationship with him in which we'll be comforted. The earth will be our inheritance. Satisfaction will be our reward eternally, and we will receive mercy and be called sons of God. That's certain. That's his promise. And there are things in this world that like Lot, we see the valley. It looks good. looks like an opportunity. But it's masked with immorality. The eyes are so influential on the body. The question for you and I is, what are you looking at? What are you having your children look at? It's important that they understand that the eye is the lamp of the body. So that if your eye is clear, resting and trusting on the promises of God, your whole body will be full of light. But here's the warning. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full. Full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. We get to enjoy baptism tonight, in which we get to witness individuals say where their eyes are at. And you and I get to be reminded once again of where we have entrusted our own faith in the God who keeps his promises. And let us encourage one another when there ever is opportunity to keep them on Christ. Let's pray. Lord, your word, as the psalmist will say, gives life. Is able to give sight to the blind.